This is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update for April 10th, 2020. As I record this at 9.10 a.m. Pacific time, there are 476,397 coronavirus cases in the United States, 17,843 are dead. The epicenter remains in the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, which now makes up nearly 57% of total American fatalities. According to the Chris Murray model, one of the projections that's being looked at by the federal government to make policy, we will hit our peak in daily death rate in two days. New York State is scheduled to hit their peak number of daily deaths in one day. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has extended his state stay-at-home order until the end of the month. And that is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. We got a lot here for you. We have a great interview coming up a little bit later on the history of public health, so government intervention into pandemics. It's great. I mean, we go back to the Black Plague. We're talking about everything in between. We always like, I mean, back in the before times when we used to have our very, you know, uh, uh, fun back and forth interviews on Wednesdays and on Fridays, we do our brainy interviews. This is a great one. This is a great brainy. You're going to learn some stuff during this interview. We are going to talk about the idea of reopening the economy. We are obviously further into the process now, and while uh, uh, only... The most uh, uh, ready to risk it all are going to be packed into full pews on Easter. We certainly now have more of an idea of at least where our breakouts are. And therefore, we know a little bit more about where they aren't. So we're going to talk about reopening the economy in a second and uh, the, the pitch that the government has for that. But we begin with politics. Oh, God, I'm so excited i'm so excited to be able to bernie drops out on wednesday cool that means that the general election has already started and at least one of the horses are out of the gate as fast as possible and that is the president of the united states of america not only did they release one anti-joe biden ad the day that bernie dropped out they they released another one we played the first one on wednesday and that compared Bernie Sanders to Joe Biden, at least on on the record of uh, uh, that they wanted to highlight, and ended with the the just lance, the lance at the heart, or maybe we should say the brain, 
of Joe Biden saying that at least Bernie can remember his positions. Woof! But I said after that on Twitter, at Justin R. Young, all right, everybody, what's the first ad that Trump's going to do that focuses on Hunter? What's the first Hunter ad going to be about? Because I've been telling you on this podcast that if Joe Biden's the nominee, then, then Hunter is Clinton's email server but with a substance abuse problem and a baby out of wedlock with a stripper. Like that's that's who we are going to focus on. And if you're and if your response is, oh, if they want to focus on kids, then you are walking right into the trap. You are walking right into the trap. If if Joe Biden's campaign spends a second talking about Don Jr. or Eric or Ivanka which has been strip-mined, unless they find something new, right? They find something new, okay. But if they go back over old stuff with them, then all you are doing is making, that that is sinking into the quicksand, in my opinion. Because a lot of people don't know the Hunter stuff. And the Hunter stuff is sassy. The Hunter stuff is tabloid trashy. So you can say... Oh, you know, Don Jr.'s dating Gavin Newsom's ex, right? You can say Ivanka slept with Quincy Jones. You can do that. But it's not the same as Hunter Biden was known as the guy who smokes crack by the strippers in D.C. in the VIP room. That just hits different. It hits different. Anyway, I asked that on Twitter. What's the first Hunter ad going to be about? And, oh, Jesus, 48 hours later, we already have our answer. This was the ad released by Team Trump today. Ready to go? This is a crisis. This is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysterical xenophobia. Biden's son inked a billion-dollar deal with a subsidiary of the Bank of China... China is going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. They're not bad folks, folks. Since the outbreak, the Communist Party has been mobilizing overseas organizations to buy local supplies and send them to China. It is in our self-interest that China continue to prosper. What a beautiful history we wrote together. Banning all travel will not stop it. President is right. That travel restriction on China, as every public health official we've talked to said, bought the country time. That was a very smart move right there. Hysterical xenophobia. Xenophobia. I complimented him on on dealing with China. I'm not going nuts. So the only thing that you're really missing audio-wise is that there's a bunch of footage of uh, Biden with uh, Chairman Xi... President G uh clinking glasses so the the like the beautiful history we've written together that's that's him clinking glasses with uh President G of China. Uh China was what the, the Hunter answer was. Boy, it didn't take long for us to get to Hunter. I'm telling you. There and then we haven't even touched the gossipy stuff. We ain't even touched the tawdry stuff. I can tell you confidently, there is 
one theme I can now confidently predict will will continue to happen in each and every one of these Trump ads. Every time that you are picking a Biden soundbite, and that happens in all political ads, right? Uh, Dick Johnson says that he loves dogs. And it's like, I hit my dog once, right? Like there's always like, you need the other people in their own voices. The Trump ads are going to select the most fumbly, mumbly version of those quotes. They will never go with one that's clean. They're always going to go with a like, well, here's the deal, Jack. Boy, boy, Jack, man. Right? Like they're they're always going to go with one in which he's saying what they need him to say and fumbling on his words. They They want the messiest, like they are going to hammer both quietly and loudly that you should be worried about Joe Biden's health, mental health. That's what they are going to do. This ad ended the same way the last ad ended, which is think about Joe Biden's mental health. This is going to be brutal. Brutal. Like this is this is unlike I mean, again, these these are not pack ads. These are not other people. Normally you have the political action committees do your dirty work. They run the ads that then you can distance yourself from. This is from the Trump campaign. You know, this is from Team Trump. This is on Donald Trump's YouTube. That's what I'm playing this from. And both times the ads have ended with you being left with the question, is Joe Biden mentally fit to be president? No matter what, when you go to the when you go to the polls in November or mail in your ballot some days before, what the Trump campaign will not rest until is hammered into your head is you asking yourself this question, even if I am voting for Joe Biden. I know I'm doing so to somebody who I've thought about their mental health. No matter what, they just want to force people to make that mental calculation. Oh, every single one of these ads is going to end with Joe Biden fumbling over his words and looking down solemnly. This has happened in both ads so far. I don't think we're going to get a Donald Trump ad that doesn't end like that. Well, off the campaign trail, we still do have a plague to deal with, and that is the case now. So you heard the numbers up front. What we're looking at here is, you know, it's hard to say encouraging. Although, you want to know what? Today, on Good Friday, maybe this is the only time we can use this metaphor, right? Good Friday, of course. The day that is uh, here to commemorate the crucifixion of Jesus. Bad, right? We can all agree, bad. But yet, it is the part, uh, it is part of the Easter ritual. The Easter ritual, of course, uh, uh, symbolizing as Jesus rose from the dead. And so, 
we can say that on this Good Friday, let's qualify our very, 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 very bad news. And that is that we continue to have over 1,900 dead a day. And April 7th, we had 1971. April 8th, we had 1940. April 9th, we had 1,900. Now, I would expect for us to top 2,000 at some point. I would expect that based on lagging death counts and stuff like that, that we're probably going to see another pop. But what does also seem to be happening is uh, as, as brutal as it has been in New York and New Jersey, there seems to be a slowing of hospitalizations, which will mean a slowing of the death toll. And considering that they, you know, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, like I keep saying during the coronavirus update, that's over half of all of our deaths. That would seem to indicate that we might be either close to the top of the hump, if not, dare I say it, slightly past it. Now, again, I do not think that that we're that, that you know. 1970 if 1970 is the height of our death of our daily death toll then oh my god great great news considering uh i do expect it to pop over 2000 for hopefully a brief period of time and then continue to come down but uh look we we um we're getting closer to the end as as we all in we are in every facet of life, but this is uh, uh, the big question: When do we reopen the economy? And we started to see some reports trickle out yesterday about exactly that. Two things: Number one, May May is when folks are, uh, and and when I say folks, I mean the White House is now eyeing to reopen sections of the economy. Dr. Fauci said at the press conference yesterday that when we say restart the economy, we should be mindful. This is not something that nationally just turns on like a light switch. He specifically said that he would not in any way think it is safe to do it in, let's say, New York City until there are very specific benchmarks hit. However... There are parts of this gigantic expanse of a country that uh, have not been affected as much. As you might say, with continued social distancing and maybe, you know, increasing uh, uh, people wearing masks outside, that you can start to get back to work. The question is when and the question is how. And to answer that, We are now also getting reports that there will be a second coronavirus task force put together. This uh, would be on the economic side. So treating these as two distinct problems deserving of their own experts that need to be in concert with each other. So you have the health people that will always err on the side of health over everything. You have the economic people that are going to say, all right, well, let's listen to when it's going to be safe. You don't want to restart the economy too soon or in the wrong places. 
and then all of a sudden you're you're in retrograde. But we do need to we need one side that's thinking about when is it safe. And I think that that's important. There is a symbiosis to this. You know, in Wuhan, they literally just uh, lifted the restrictions and there's already rent strikes. You know, they're dealing with massive economic fallout and they've been dealing with it for longer than we have. So, on the other side, you know, even if your number one issue is health, like I've said before, the only thing worse than a pandemic are riots during a pandemic. You don't want that. How do you avoid riots? You let people work. You let people have money. You can give people money, but, you know, we, we've seen uh, what a struggle that can be. And so, here we are. May. It looks like May. We are, we are uh, talking about this on, on April 10th. So it looks like we're going to get another, you know, another three weeks, another three weeks of, 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 of lockdown. But hopefully through those three weeks, we are seeing de-escalation. Because I think the idea of May will look a lot different if that's where we're seeing the numbers go from here. All right, everybody, if you want to support this show, then you can go ahead and do it at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. At the $3 level, you get a bonus episode on Monday. You get a bonus episode on Thursday. And with all these ads coming out, now's a good time to do it. If you can, if you can, again, if you can. Tough times, I know. If you can, I'd be greatly appreciative. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And here's another reminder. I got a newsletter. Free political newsletter at FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. Free. Five days a week. You can get on it now. First email you're going to get is Sunday. Five stories a day. Quick read. Also, we've been getting a lot of complaints about the, the old villain Al Doritos. The algorithms that, that for whatever reason sort this newsletter into spam. We've taken precautions on our end uh, uh, to, to change it to a unique domain and everything. However, if you could do me a favor, when that email comes out on Sunday, sign up for the email. When the email comes out, just go ahead and respond with anything, anything you want. Just go ahead and respond just so we can get a little social proof into the old hands of uh, Google and Gmail and everyone else that's trying to sort this nutritious email into spam. Can you believe it? All right, back to the show. Our guest today is Graham Mooney. He's an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University in the School of Medicine and the Bloomberg School of Public Health. You can check out his 2015 book, Intrusive Interventions, Public Health, Domestic Space and Infectious Disease Surveillance, in England, 1840 to 1914. That's a good read. A lot of those policies, as you're going to hear in this interview, they're still at play today with COVID-19. Also, make sure you follow them at HistGeogHealth, H-I-S-T-G-E-O-G-H-E-A-L-T-H. And you're going to want to once you listen to them. 
In fact, let's bring him on right now. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Obviously, this is the only story that exists on planet Earth right now. Uh, uh, strangely, globally, it's not even just in uh, uh, you know America or the Western democracies or Europe. It's it is literally all consuming. So what we try to do on this podcast is find very, very smart people like you to kind of give us a larger uh, a context to stuff that is happening to us now. And I think this is a particularly interesting situation since it doesn't come around all that often and certainly not on this scale. So let's go ahead and just get the broadest possible context on when, you know, on, on just public policy and infectious disease and pandemics. Like, like where is, is there a, a beginning of our modern era when it comes to that? Well, that's a, um, a very tough question to answer in some ways because public health as kind of like a formal activity, government activity that was, you know, has laws behind it and uh, was allowed to do things in the name of government really doesn't date until the you know, the late 18th, early 19th century. But you can go back, for example, back to the Black Death in the 14th century where you saw examples of European governments um, you know, creating um, you know, temporary legislation at least to regulate the activities of people during epidemics. So um, confining people to their homes, for example, or taking them to a hospital um, you know, on the outskirts of town. So these were sort of things that happened, um, going, like I say, going back to the, the 14th century and uh, the Black Death. And those sorts of um, interventions, if you like, were um, carried on whenever there was a, a visitation of plague. And there were, you know, many visitations of plague um, across the globe um, up until... Uh, the early 20th century. So it goes back quite a long way. But as I said just before, you know, public health as a sort of formal activity that government became involved in in most um, industrialised countries really can be dated to the early 19th century um, and uh, throughout the 19th and 20th century, those kind of interventions that government that we now see playing out during the um, COVID-19 pandemic um, were you know, increasingly practiced from the early 19th century. So things like um, the closing of schools, uh, things like um, requiring people to go to hospital, um, people being confined to their homes, um, and also other legislation like compulsory vaccination and immunization. These are all um, laws that were laid down in the 19th century. So that really is, I would say, the sort of the time period when public health activity sort of crystallized and became uh, part of our sort of daily life, if you like. Yeah. And, and I, I, I do wonder at, at what point kind of historically there is a, a switch that flips that says, OK, well, everybody gets sick, but these illnesses are not are regular illnesses, and therefore it is the government's job to protect the larger populace. Like, is, 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 there, is there a moment where 
where that is that is just the 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 decision. I guess it goes back as far as the black plague. Well, it kind of does, yeah. But it, you know, the, if you want to, I wouldn't go as far as to say there was a moment. Sure. But certainly, certainly, the industrial revolution, which we can, you know, from about the mid eighteen hundreds, the, the mid eighteenth um, century onwards. So from seventeen seventeen fifties onwards. Um, you get an increasing uh, number of people living in cities um, due to you know, the, the, the um, locations of industries being in, in cities. So cities grow at exponential rates during the 18th, late 18th and 19th and early 20th century in a lot of places. And this presented a huge challenge because, you know, workers become absolutely central to the survival of city-states. Uh, you know, people have to be able to go to work in factories, mills, businesses, um, in order for the, you know, you know, empires like the British Empire, for example, to survive. So, you know, preserving the health of those workers <clears throat> and also making sure that those workers don't become a burden on the state by their illness was something that was definitely, you know, if you want to pinpoint a, a reason why it became so important, uh, public health became so important, that would be it. Because not only is not only a question of keeping the, the workers um, healthy so that they can produce things, um, but it's also about how do you, you know, how do you provide those workers with things like um, um, water supply, um, sewers. Uh, drains so that they they can you know that the environment that they live in isn't um, you know an unhygienic um, you know gross if you like the urban uh, sink um, that was one of the words that was used to call these places you know big cities so it, it's <coughs> excuse me it's um yeah it's around those sorts of issues that that sort of public health becomes um, a, a you know a, a very um, significant government activity so that's fascinating because if this is tied to the rise of cities then obviously like you uh, explained not only is it uh going to be driven by by the industrial concerns and the economic issues but also you know as we see in large cities like here in america and in new york and la and chicago and detroit there are big problems that are treated like local issues when you have one person that's running the city, right? And and we're going to see, we, we are seeing in real time, like what Mayor de Blasio has done in New York or what Garchetti has done in, in LA, and, and they will be judged for those actions. But now, uh, uh, one person getting sick or a cluster of people getting sick in a city where there is a tremendous population density, I can understand is a lot more of a uh, a problem for a mayor of something that is as large as a mega city. Absolutely. And, you know, there are some very good examples of how that power, that sort of local power, plays out historically. And so, I'm, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm at Johns Hopkins. I'm based in Baltimore. Baltimore, for example, was one of the... Um, the last of the large big cities in the United States to introduce a sewer system 
in the early 20th century. And one of the reasons for that were arguments about, you know, where's the money going to come from? Um, you know, big, in, big industries, particularly, say, the, uh, you know, the, um, the maritime, local maritime fishing and oyster industries were worried about su- the sewage being, you know, um, uh, released into the Chesapeake Bay and contaminated the fish and the oysters. Uh, you know, the, the local politicians were worried about local resources being diverted from other pla- from other things if the sewers were getting built. So, so these kinds of questions around public infrastructure and local resources are always getting played out, particularly in a, in a, a yeah, you know, particularly in the the US, where you have um, you know you have these different layers of government, the local, the state, and the federal. So um, so yeah, it's a it's it's kind of fascinating to watch what's going on at the moment. How how um, you know local politicians are coming to local decisions within the context of what the states are doing and what the the federal government is or um, or in in some of these cases isn't doing. Now, obviously, right now, we are in a pandemic, the likes of which we have not seen in over a century. Uh, But Mm -hmm. there is, uh, I'm sure, many other different outbreaks of substantially dangerous diseases uh, that have had more softer touch uh, public health uh, responses to them. Uh, beyond just the government mandating everybody stay in their home, which I was I was I was kind of taken aback when you were talking about like that being the solution in the Black Plague, right? I guess that some classics are classics for a reason. Uh, uh, what yeah. are some other public health uh, measures that have been taken to try and mitigate disease as we have uh, uh, you know come forward here in America? Well, that's um, you know there, there are lots of examples. So um, one that I you know that I like to point to is the role of um, smallpox vaccination. So smallpox vaccination was um, discovered, if you like, um, in the late 1790s in England, and it was imported across, it was imported to the United States. It, it became very popular, actually, across the world. Um, and that was one of the first um, compulsory First forms of compulsory health legislation anywhere. You know that. Um, you know, so states in in America, but also you know other nation states, adopted compulsory vaccination. And so that actually has <clears throat> that, that that mandatory vaccination regulations, which were adopted from the, the early 19th century onwards, they play out still today. If you think about the immunisation, um, you know, um, debates around immunisation. Um, you know, uptake, immunisation hesitancy, as they call it now, um, and around the, which are very much around the rights and freedoms of people to, you know, bring up their kids the way that they want to bring them up, and they see, you know, being forced to immunise their children as something that is you know, against the way their beliefs. So, that these kinds of things have, uh, you know, historically have a strong resonance into the present. Um, you know, it, it became it became possible in you know the late 19th and early 20th century to actually uh, enforce people to go to hospital if they had an infectious disease. Um, so you know, if a disease was notified, that is, you know, if if somebody had an illness like um, scarlet fever or whooping cough or diphtheria, you know, these are a lot of diseases that in the West you know have 
pretty much disappeared due to vary, for various reasons. But you know, if, if, if somebody had those diseases, the local authority was empowered to go into their home and you know, remove them and take them to hospital. So that kind of um, those sorts of um, intrusions on people's freedom became more and more common um, throughout the 19th century. And I think what that, that what happened is that they were sold to the public at the time through the language of freedom. And so what was happening is that the politicians and public health people were saying, look, if you want to, the right to live your life freely and to go about your daily life, you know, to have a job and to you know, run a business, um, then you've got to curtail your freedoms when um, certain threats come along that are to do with infectious diseases. So it was, it was, even though it seems coercive to be able to tell people to stay in their homes or to not go to school or to, um, or to take them or forcibly take them to an infectious disease hospital, that was actually um, you know, sold through the language of freedom, which is a, an in, interesting contradiction. Yeah, yeah, and and it's almost one that I wonder if we're going to get another round of coming out of this because that that would that would be my suspicion is that uh we are we are probably going to see another uh, uh you know civil liberty versus safeguard against this now that we see what this truly is, you know, the idea of a yeah. a global pandemic that can grind the world's economy to an absolute standstill. That is something that I think if there's ever going to be a time for people to suggest, hey, here's the reason why you might just get uh, not allowed out of the airport when you get off a plane. Uh, uh, yeah, this this is going to be the reason why this is the time that you're going to be able to sell it to people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the, the interesting things historically is that people objected to some of this stuff because it stopped them from say, you know, traditionally you would care for your ill kid. At home, you'd look after them at home, and they'd get better. Hopefully, they'd get better, um, and then they could, you know, go back to whatever they were doing, go to school, playing on the streets, hanging out with their mates. Um, and so, what these kinds of rule, what these kinds of regulations do, is they challenge um, long-held ways of doing things. And one reason for that is that they, they people thought that they they were being put under surveillance. <clears throat> they felt that. You know, the, all the, a lot of these regulations meant that the government, through represented by sanitary inspectors or medical officers, uh, were being too intrusive, and that they were interfering in their lives, uh, and that they were um, being put under increased government surveillance. And I think that's one of the things that's coming up now is that you know people are. I saw, uh, um, I saw a, something the other day about. Um, yeah, the, some of the apps that are being people are being asked to install on their phones in in some countries in order to track them when they've been diagnosed or you know, that they've been tested positive for COVID nineteen, and there's a there's a concern that those kinds of um, those kinds of tracking measures um, will be you know, will just stay in place afterwards. So yeah, I think there are sort of interesting ways in which we might think of under non-pandemic times government was overreaching how then that might eventually get full refolded into daily life after a pandemic and 
my guess is it'll be uneven in some, yeah, it'll be a very uneven process in some countries it will happen in others it won't um and it'll and that'll in itself will fold into much bigger debates about yeah the ability of big tech companies particularly you know um mobile phone providers and Google so on to track your, your whereabouts and what you do anyway. So there's a, a, a whole load of interesting um, um, things to do with public health that have knock-on effects. Now, a lot of the time period that we are talking about also coincides with greater travel, uh, both by train, car, and eventually boat and airplane internationally. Uh, how much has these local conversations either in their native countries track to international cooperation uh, of, of understanding, Hey, look, this isn't just a problem in, in London. If there's so many people that come from London and New York and vice versa, for example. Yeah. Um, one thing I always emphasize to um, students when teaching infectious disease and epidemics is yeah, the, the, the reason why a disease like the Black Death spread in the 14th century or cholera, there have been seven cholera pandemics since the early 19th century um, is that you always have global, communi global level communications. You know, you know, um, the movement of people and goods through trade across pretty large areas of the globe. So it's not so much the the fact of communication. I think now it's the volume and the speed with which that communication can take place that is the really challenging aspect. And with a disease like COVID-19, um, you know, stopping international travel, you know, as a response, um, it, it only it can only possibly work if you get right in at the very very beginning and you combine it with other measures. So, you know, as we've seen, you know, stopping flights between hotspot areas, you might reduce the number of um, cases coming in and out, but once it's got a hold in the community, it's very, very difficult to, to, to stop. And I think, you know, most epidemiologists, um, you know, would understand that that's the case, but also, you know, Knowing from from histories of of quarantine that you know if you've got a disease that is spread locally, once it's in the, lo the local community, it's really difficult to to stop. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 so interesting to see, and it will be one of I think probably the most uh, important sort of uh, international cooperation public policy debates that we're yeah. going to have going forward. Is is exactly what what do we mandate? Like, what what do we yeah. need to know going forward? And that kind of brings me to something that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, which is not only with COVID-19, but also with SARS. It, it seems as if that part of this was the country of origin was not honest. And 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 that and that partly was a reason why things wound up uh, uh, getting as big as they are. Before we get to China specifically, let's just ask as a broad question especially in a world where we can get uh, we can get around it in, you know, uh, uh, 24 hours via plane. How important is honesty in our modern era uh, from a government level? 
Yeah, her newsflash: politicians aren't honest. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know that's uh, you know as we're seeing, you know it's very difficult to work out what what isn't isn't, and I use this in quote marks, the truth. Um, and I think it's exponentially more difficult since you know, since there are you know there are accusations of the fake media going around. There are there's been a, a, a consistent and fairly systematic denial of the role of expertise, particularly in scientific debates, um, say, for example, around climate change. So it, it, you know, it, it becomes hard for politicians to, who, who have been taking that stance uh, over the past 10, 15, 20 years to then turn around and say to people, you've got to come with us now. We're doing all these measures uh, you know, these measures that curtail your freedom, that seem very draconian, um, because we're listening to the science. I mean, the number of, if you had a dollar for every time a politician had said that in the past one, we're being guided by the science, um, when they've spent lots of time saying they're ignoring science or they don't believe experts. So it's in the past. Um, so it's it, that role of honesty is it, it's not, it, it, you've got to build the trust. You can't erode trust. And then suddenly expect people to, you know, when there's a time of pandemic, to all of a sudden have faith in the things that you're saying. So, you know, as, as with most, um, one of the, as with the reasons why we as historians study epidemics and pandemics, is because one of the things that they do is they reveal the fissures and the breakages and the shortcomings of society, because society comes under so much strain. And this is one of them, I think, this role of trust and the role of, of scientific expertise. And that isn't to say that we should just qu shouldn't ever question what scientists say. Yeah. I think it's really, it's really important. You know, science is no more or less objective than, than many other um, intellectual and practical pursuits. But, you know, it has to be out in the public domain and we have to have a grown-up, serious conversation um, about science um, and you know that's one of the things that history can help us do is to put those um, sorts of conversations into context I, I do think that that's such an important point to make because I've I have gotten frustrated in watching the kind of uh, a meta of our you know politicization of science and everything that that we, we seem to forget two things the first is the point that you made which is uh, or the first point that you made, which is we, we, this, this is here for a reason, right? <laughs> you know, the science yeah. being the, the, uh, latest best state of our understanding of the world is important to know if we want to make sound decisions, specifically in issues of public health. And then secondarily, yeah. that science by definition is challenging the results. Right. Because yeah. that's how we continue to get better. We continue that that's, that's the most brilliant universal truth of science is that everything should be challenged. And if you can prove it, then congratulations. We've now have a clearer picture. Yeah. Until the next challenge to that comes. Exactly. Along, you know, and you know, and I think we have a, we have a, a, a sort of popular view of science as being um, objective, um, you know, and providing us with answers, but you know, as a, as a, as a, as a discipline, science thrives on uncertainty. You know, that's why it exists, is to try and bring a greater level of certainty to the whole messy world that's around us. And one of the things I've found really fascinating is, you know, I follow, I follow a bunch of epidemiologists 
on Twitter because that's one of the things that I've always done. And they're just, you know, they're loggerheads around what should be done here. You know, the role of modelling, the yeah. role of forecasting, you know, the role of, um, you know, what are the most appropriate interventions given the, the knowledge that we have, how uncertain all these things are around case testing and deaths and so on. And, you know, they're, they're arguing in real time about this, but that's exactly what science should do. And it's, you know, I think as a, as a, as a, as a, general public we have to allow science a certain amount of leeway to do that yes um so that we're in a best position when we get these massive crises to be able to say well based on that science you know what you've been arguing about for the past since you know since SARS for example what you've been arguing about around the most appropriate interventions then give give us some answers and you're still going to get a vast range of answers so you know well yeah it's, and uh, and, and, science is science is quite interesting. And that's and, and that's the thing is to me a science a great science communicator inspires questions. Like yes. and 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 it should. It should bring out questions in people. It should bring out uh, uh, uh you know e even in the forms of of skepticism bordering on cynicism because if science can't if the answers can't inform those feelings in people then it's not being communicated right. And 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 there should always be uh, people that that have questions about stuff, but the, the 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 answers, though they should never be looked at as rock solid, should at least be informative. <laughs> they should at least make people yeah. think uh, of of uh, you know how we are at best looking at the world. Yeah, and you know, as a historian, that as best looking at the world is something that you're always trying to uh, place yourself within that realm. So. You know, thinking about what are the choices people have had in the past? Why did they reject certain things? Why did they accept certain things? And you know, the the point that you know the points at which they considered themselves you know, what we call our historical actors also thought they were modern. So you yeah. know, when they were making those when they were making those choices about whether to close schools or not, it was based on you know what they thought was evidence. You know, what they thought what was the best evidence of the time and so you know and it, 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 it yeah we can say now well we know a lot more about how diseases you know are caused we know a lot more about the mechanisms of illness so for example in 1918 nobody had even seen a virus under a microscope when influenza was making its was ravaging the globe in 1918 yeah. 19 nobody had seen a virus but we knew it was they knew somehow it was communicable. It was based on you know, on people being close together. It was probably communicated through the air. So, so you can have imperfect knowledge and still take actions that have an impact. And I think that's where the politicians come in is make it with you know how they get to those decisions, who makes them, and for what reasons they make them. All right, last question here because it's something that I've thought a lot about specifically as, you know, again, like you just mentioned, the closest thing that we have to compare this to is something that happened over 100 years ago when the world was vastly different than it is today. So just yep. in general, how much has our, and this is going to be an impossible question to to answer, but I, I will I will uh, oh, thanks, take you doing your best. I'll take you doing your best. But our <laughs> our modern world in terms of, both being able to communicate faster, but also being able to travel faster, are we better or worse off in this particular situation dealing with a pandemic like this in our modern world than we were in 1918, 1919? 
Well, 1918-19 is, is, like you say, it's vastly different. And there's one crucial difference that we need to remember is that it was just towards the end of the First World War, okay, in 1918-19, where global, supposedly, you know, the, you know, the, the global um, alliance of nations had been you know, building up to uh, that that particular conflict for a couple of decades. And you know, the, 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 the war imposed certain restrictions on, on, say, for example, the honesty and sharing of information. So, you know, there were, um, the, the media was, news, media and newspapers were uh, censored in a lot of nation states, so they couldn't share a lot of information about the progression of the influenza because for national security concerns, for example. So in, in, in some respects, it was very, it was, excuse me, in some respects, <clears throat> sorry, in some respects, it was very, very, uh, it was very different. And it, there was a, like a unique, um, uh, that unique episode of the, war, of the war. I think today we should in, potentially, <laughs> we should be in a better position because despite the, um, Despite the, the ability of a disease to move around the globe much more rapidly, much more quickly, quickly we also have uh, yeah, a bunch of supranational uh, bodies in place that should be able to coordinate effectively. You know, the United Nations, particularly in the past couple of days, the role of the World Health Organization has been highlighted by the U.S. president. Um, uh, you know, so, so there should be... Um, you know, a capacity at least to coordinate at a global level. And I think the World Health Organization does try to do that. But you know, nation states also have to have their own autonomy. They have to make their own decisions as well. So that, that, I think that is one of the things that's going to be revisited as well. Not that it's ever out of the debate of people who are interested in health policy and global health is, you know, what is the role of these global organizations for coordinating responses? Yeah. I and I I that that's where I've kind of landed now is is beyond you know obviously there there's a survival point now and that's where we're at but as we start to kind of jot down in pencil things to look at <laughs> you know so yeah, we can yeah. understand this uh uh I I do think that like if we have an organization like 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 the WHO uh which has done amazing work throughout the years uh we we got to understand where where we got to this point from and 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 exactly what we can do better not only from their point of view but also from all the you know member states of the uh, of the yeah. united nations and i think you know we turn to something like the world health organization in situations like this because it's you know it's an, it's an emergency it's a crisis you're looking for these kinds of you know you're looking for pointers from uh, an organization that's supposed to take this very broad view but i think one of the 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 key things that we're going to take away from this is you know, how absolutely crucial you know, the, the availability of primary care is on the ground. And when I say primary care, I mean hospital beds, you know, yeah. in questions around ventilators and so on. And we've got, you know, as the, um, you know, as the, as COVID sort of, as the geographical focus moves now, I think it's moved, going to move more towards countries in Africa. Yeah. As we saw in particularly with, um, you know, Ebola, you know, the question of, you know, local healthcare systems 
having capacity to deal with these things. That's not a reflection of their ability to handle necessarily a pandemic. It's a reflection of what they do on the ground every day outside of pandemic times. Yeah. And you know, questions of where those resources get directed, uh, you know, there needs to be a big reconsideration of that. Oh, well, you know, uh, I, hopefully, hopefully uh, people really, really enjoy this because I know I did. Uh, if there's one thing that does bring me any kind of peace in this very, very, very chaotic uh -huh. world, it is at least trying to look and understand uh, how we got here and how we can do better going forward. And we have a Graham Mooney, an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University in the School of Medicine and the Bloomberg School of Public Health to thank for that. Please, everybody, go check out his 2015 book, Intrusive Interventions, Public Health, Domestic Space, and Infectious Disease Surveillance in England, 1840 to 1914. Uh, as Look, you will be surprised. A lot of those policies developed back then still in play today, right now. And please go ahead and follow him on Twitter. That is, well, I'm going to ask you to, to help me pronounce uh, this, uh, the Twitter handle, uh, uh, but it's HistGeog Health. HistGeog Health. It's, it's short for History, Geography, and Health. There we go. All right. H-I-S-T-G-E-O-G-H-E-A-L-T-H. Graham, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Stay safe, everybody. And now let's go ahead into our email. You can always send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We begin with Adam. He writes, is Trump as good of a dragon slayer as he is a gladiator? He surprised us repeatedly with how tough he is mano a mano, but COVID doesn't have a character to assassinate. How do you think he's doing without someone to punch? Well, I think we found that he, he is never going to be without someone to punch, right? You know, he, he's <laughs> he can't really yell at COVID, so instead he's going to yell at media questions and he's going to yell at the Wall Street Journal and he's going to yell at uh, everybody else. So ultimately, this is not a situation that is suited to whatever the strengths of Trump the politician. In fact, I, I do think that this is, I mean, <laughs> again, it really is a head scratcher with the Biden campaign because there is an element. If Joe Biden were just Mr. Rogers right now, like just forget politics, like the primaries are on cruise control, your other guy dropped out, literally. Every day you go out on a live stream and you say, hey, everybody, stay safe. I just want to remind everybody to wash their hands. Uh, uh, make sure that you, uh, you know, uh, maybe debunk some of the like, oh, you know, a lot of folks might have gotten these text messages about how you need to hold your breath for 10 minutes. Folks, it's a bunch of malarkey. You don't need to do that. And here to tell us why here's some renowned doctor and also look who's on uh look who's on zoom it's lin-manuel miranda and he's like he was joe biden asking you to wash your hands and like if there, if he was just that because what trump is very bad at is consistent messaging it's the reason why andrew cuomo has gotten the kind of shine that he's gotten because he is doing something very calming and reassuring. 
This is what disaster leader looks like on television or has looked like on television for decades. Someone with, you know, who looks a little less polished than they normally do. They're not wearing all the accoutrement that they normally do. Maybe it's, uh, you know, something a little bit less dressy. And they're looking down the barrel of the camera and they're just saying facts. These many people, that many people, advisories are going out, bleep, blop, bloop. There we go. They don't take questions. They say what they need to say and they're done. Cuomo is doing that. Biden could be. The other thing that Biden could do is, I mean, this this blew my mind. This is in the post two days ago. I thought the other thing that Biden could do is just say, hey, look, we're in a national, uh, we're, we're in a national emergency. We're in a global pandemic. That's a little bit redundant, but whatever. There are people that obviously on either side of the political line don't like to talk to each other. We all need to come together right now. Anybody that is hesitant to deal with the president or doesn't trust the president, I'm going to be here. Let me let me help connect people. And so we did. He did do that. Apparently, he had connections for various different uh, supplies or whatever. that We really don't know exactly what it was. But instead of just sending an email to a governor, sending an email to the government or the federal government, his campaign sent an email saying, hey, we have connections. Can you give us the point person so we can facilitate that? You can't, you're gonna get credit anyway. You can't get too cute with the credit. You can't, I mean, you just need to, you're a referral system. And you say, today we referred a, a, a bunch of our friends at." you know, whatever unions or businesses to the following states, they're currently working as hard as they can to make sure that this happens. Just if you have supplies, if you have something, please, so respond to our email, email supplies at joebiden.com and we will do our best to help facilitate that. You've got a massive mailing list and a massive footprint right now. And this is what you're exploiting for Trump. Trump, he, he he's bad at consistent messaging. He's bad at making people feel good. He's very bad at it. There's a reason why he, he you know, he got terrified about those economic numbers. So he comes out during the town hall on Fox and they say, well, when do you think the economy can reopen? And he says, Easter. And he even says, he just pulled it out of his butt. He pulled it out of his butt. Now, I get why he did that, but politically, that exposes a weakness of his. Especially in, in, in uncertain times, he's not good at being the warm blanket. He is the fighter. He is not the comforter. Joe Biden could be the comforter. And he's not. I don't know how this turned into a Biden thing instead of a Trump thing. But I guess it's like, what? what is? how is Trump handling this? Well, you're watching it. 
right? <laughs> I mean, I don't think that, you know, the, the, the press conferences I think are really important just because I, I appreciate Dr. Birch and uh, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci. I like the fact that the HHS secretary that, you know, uh, a bar that the VP and even Trump are facing questions. I would prefer them to face questions than to not face questions, regardless of the answers they give. But they're not comforting. I don't know anybody who watches those and says, wow, do I have peace of mind now? Stephen writes, uh, I think it's right for Bernie just to pause and not pull out of the presidential race. The current president and the candidates are all old white guys. COVID appears to be good at killing old white guys. If Biden dies, uh, Bernie is ready to go. But a question for the Democrats is what happens if both Biden and Bernie both die before the election? If Trump dies... Will people vote for Pence? Oh, my God. All right. Um, by the rules, there is no actual Democratic nominee yet. Uh, so if Biden were to die tomorrow, then there would just now be jockeying for who would be the nominee at the convention. That would almost certainly not be Bernie. Because now you're into the hands of the party establishment and elite blah 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 um if trump died of covid uh i i i don't think that that would be a good sign for his administration's handling of covid so i would probably say that 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 would be a, a real uphill battle for old pence i think that that would be hard it'd be hard to win especially when you were the head of the pandemic response team that you failed so hard that the president died. That would be a hard one to sell. Jason writes, dumb question. If my little grandma in Wisconsin stayed home every day during this pandemic, except she went out to vote because that means a lot to her. Oh boy, does she hate that Bernie guy. And then she gets the 19 and dies. Can the family sue somebody? I know they can sue anyone. But do you think that that could be a legit case that would get traction and maybe yield some sort of result other than wasting everyone's time? Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Lawyers email in uh, and, and tell us whether or not that's the case. I, I don't think so. Because she did leave her house on her own volition. She could have asked for an absentee ballot. Blah, blah, blah. But I don't think so. But I am not a lawyer. And finally, our last email is Michael. Or Mike. Mike Keeper. A plague upon both the houses in Wisconsin. Disgraceful. Democracy sacrificed on the altar of partisan politics. To which I say... Here, here. You can always email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. But that wraps it up for us today. A reminder, you can follow me on social media everywhere at Justin R. Young. You can sign up for our free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. You can watch me live on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young every day. But Wednesday, I'm streaming. So you can ask me any question about politics there. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier. 
Brad, TroubleFilm.com. Miranda, Emily, Glenn, Wolf, Brand, Chili, Scoop, Thor, Normatic, Terran, uh, your boy, Craig, Robert, Olin, and Angela, Dustin, Richard, Kilowatt, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Melkleg, Scoop, J, Milius, Paul, Jonathan, The Gen, Nicholas, Adam, Zach, Chad, Andrew, Peter, Nick, Frozen, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Adam, D. Laser, and Middle Age. Mike, you want to join them? You head to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. But until the next time we meet on Monday, for the $3 people, and Wednesday, for everybody else, I'm your old pal, Justin Robert Young, reminding you, some shows talk about politics. Still more talk about politics. And there was one the other day that talked about politics. But this is the only show that dares to talk about Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>